Hey, good morning, y'all. Is this on? Yeah, all right. Uh, my name is Ed Griffin Egg, and I'm uh, one of the pastors on staff here at my church, and i got to say this first real quick. I'm a pretty conservative guy, and I normally would not be standing here preaching in this shirt. I'd have a blue, solid color, blue pinpoint, nice-looking shirt on. But I got a text from a very dear friend of mine last night about 11 o'clock who was at MD Anderson in Texas uh, going through cancer treatment, and she texted me and said, you got to rock a Paisley shirt tomorrow morning because I'm going to be watching. And, uh, and so y'all give Bethany a shout-out and keep them in your prayers. And, you know, growing up as a kid, in my house and even a few, just a few years ago uh, when my two sons, Zach and Will, were at home, we'd call a family meeting. We might have, we might have something serious we need to talk about or, or we may have something to celebrate, but we'd call a family meeting. And, and, uh, and as I prayed about uh, this message this morning and as I have uh, thought about it for the last couple of weeks, I feel like that's sort of what this is. It is sort of a family meeting, so as best I can, I want to just remove any kind of distance between us, and I figuratively, this is the kitchen table. We're all going to sit down, and by the way, this is my favorite mug, and I have, have my coffee all the time at my kitchen table because the three, three of the sweetest little girls in the world gave me this for Christmas, and it says, Dear Papa Ed, we love you very much. It's sweet, so that's got my coffee. We're sitting at the table, and we're going to talk, uh, uh, talk about some things from God's Word this morning. Today I want to talk about, uh, probably we're in the third week of this Elephant in the Room series, and I want, to, I want to talk about probably the biggest elephant in the room, and that's money. I want to talk about more or less two things. Number one is the relationship between money, wealth, money, and our hearts. Uh, or is there even a relationship between those two things? So we're going to talk about that. And then number two, we're going to ask... Uh, a key question that I believe will, will be helpful for us to think about together, and that is the question, what about tithing? Am I supposed to tithe? Or is that just some Old Testament thing, and we're under grace now, so we, we're not supposed to tithe now? And I want to give, <clears throat> give you a biblical answer to that question. Before we start, though, I want to get one thing right up on top of the table, right off the bat. Listen, I get it. I was right there with you for years and years. I get it. This money thing, is a, it's a tough question. I've been a businessman in Columbus for 30 years. I've been a pastor on the staff of this church for about a year and a half. And it's a hard conversation. It's just a hard, forget even the conversation, it's a hard thing to think about yourself when you think about this tithe and this money thing. And one night, not all that long ago, Susan and I, my wife Susan, were sitting in our uh, great room watching TV, and she says to me, she says, do we give right to the church? Do we tithe? And I said, well, yeah, we give. And she said, well, that was weak. She said, no, do we tithe? Do we give like God is really first? And my answer to her was, when we can. Well, this is an authentic, transparent conversation. I said, when we can. And here was a defining moment in our marriage. Here was a defining moment in our walk together with Christ. She said, do we give right? I said, kind of. Uh, kind of. She said, do we tithe? I said, when we can. And she looked at me right in the face and she said, well, you better man up. 
And I said, okay, she just told me to man up. So as we sit here as a family together around this table, I want you to open up your Bibles or open up your, your app or whatever you got, and, or we're, and we're also going to have it on the screen here. And the first place we're going to go this morning, we're going to journey all over this Bible this morning, but the first place we're going to go is in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew's the first book of the New Testament, just to the right of the middle. Chapter 6 is in the middle of the biggest block of instruction that Jesus gives his followers in all of the New Testament. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, longest sermon in the New Testament, chapters 5, 6, and 7. And so it is sort of Jesus's instructions to us, to his followers, to us on how to live. It's not this big theology doctrine thing. It's a, it's a, whole, lot of, it's a whole lot of how we ought to live. And so here at the beginning of chapter 6, the very beginning of chapter 6, he's dealing with the self-righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And the scribes and the Pharisees are the guys that are constantly opposing him all throughout his ministry. And he gives us a few examples here at the beginning of chapter 6 of their ridiculous hypocrisy, their absurd hypocrisy. And he gives us a glimpse, really he gives us a glimpse right into their hearts. Number one, he gives us right at the, the very beginning, is the way that they give to the needy so that everybody will see just how generous they are. This is in verse 1 and 2. Jesus said, watch out, don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others for you'll lose the reward from your Father in heaven. When you give to somebody in need, don't do as the hypocrites do, blowing trumpets in the synagogues and streets to call attention to their acts of charity. Number two is the way that they make a big deal out of praying loud and all up in your face so that everybody will see just how holy they are. Every one of you have been in a restaurant, and there's some dude, and don't hear me say not to pray. That ain't what I'm saying. But some dude over here praying so loud that the kitchen staff, you know, all the way across the room can hear. It's not about that. It's, and, and, and it's not about so people will see how, how, quote, holy that you are. And that's in verse 5, six, uh, chapter 6, verse 5. Jesus said, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on street corners and in the synagogues where everybody can see them. And number three, number three, number three, the way, the way that they make themselves look miserable when they fast so that everybody will notice just how admirable they are. And this is in verse 16. And when you fast, don't make it obvious as the hypocrites do, for they try to look miserable and disheveled so people will admire them for their fasting. And, and we all know people like this. We all know people that do just that so that everybody's going to look at them and say, look how whatever they are. And I... I the other night, I'm laying in the bed, and I'm thinking, and I was kind of reading through Matthew and preparing for this message, and I just lay there, and I was praying, Lord, please don't let me be that guy. Please don't let me be that guy that does all this stuff so people will see. Please don't let me be the guy that writes a check to the church so that they'll put a plaque on the wall out there that says the Ed Griffin Hagen Worship Center. Please just let me be the guy that prays in secret, that gives that gives in secret so that, so that my Father in heaven who sees everything is going to reward me. And so he gave us those three examples, but then he gives us a fourth example. And it's similar to those other three, and it is the way, and you got this in your worship, uh, in the worship guide in the notes as well. This is the way that they pretend, they the Pharisees, it's the way that they pretend to really, really trust God when they really, really trust their money. Chapter 6 in the, in the book of Matthew is about motive. 
Give to the needy, for sure. Pray. Of course you're going to pray. Fast. Absolutely no doubt about it. But what is your motive? Is your motive so other people are going to see you? Is your motive so you can tweet it? Is your motive so that somebody's going to look and say, oh, look how good a Christian he is. I want to be like him. It is, it's, not, it's not about that. It is, it is about our heart. And our motives are wise. Maybe that's a good way to say it. Our wise are so, so important in the things that we do for God. And it's because they flow. Our motives, our wise, they flow straight out of our heart. So I want you to shoot down in, in, in Matthew chapter 6 down to verse 19. And we're going to look at 19 through 21. Again, this is Jesus talking. And he says, and he's teaching us how to live on every day how to live. He says, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths will eat them and rust will destroy them and where thieves break in and steal. No, don't do that. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and where thieves don't steal. And then verse 21 is a punchline. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart also will be. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. We tend to have two buckets of stuff. We tend to divide we tend to divide life into this bucket over here of spiritual stuff and this bucket over here of material stuff, and that is not, that is not the way Jesus looked at things. Not, that is not at all the way that he looked at things. And in most of his teachings, he made it crystal, crystal clear that having the right attitude, the right perspective, the right uh, looking at wealth and, and money the right way, results in or even is an image of authentic real true spirituality but on the other hand the pharisees were greedy and they used their their quote religion to make money and so if the holy spirit is inside of me if i'm indwelt with the holy spirit if if we have the the righteousness of christ living inside of us then we will have a proper attitude, a proper outlook, a proper perspective on wealth and on, and on money, on our stuff. But it's also may not just happen like that. It may not be I get saved today and tomorrow I look at everything right. It's probably even not like that. But as we mature, as we study Scripture, as we're in a small group, as, as, as the Holy Spirit works on us and he works on our hearts and he works on our lives and he shows himself to us, and we grow, we will develop over time that right perspective. And, and so, I'm going to tell you this. God's not ignorant. Newsflash. God is not naive. He knows that we need things in order to live. Paul said in 1 Timothy that he has given us richly all things to enjoy. It's not wrong to possess things. It's wrong for the things to possess us. That's two fundamentally different things. Hear that. It is not wrong to possess things. It's not wrong for us to own stuff. It's wrong for the stuff to own us. And when our stuff owns us, we've made an idol out of it. And the sin of idolatry is just as dangerous as any sin in that scripture. That Bible, it, it, it warns us over and over and over against being greedy. Jesus warned us against the sin of, of living for the things of this life. And in this chapter, in Matthew chapter 6, 
he points out a few of the sad consequences of greed, of covetousness, and of idolatry. This passage tells me that greed will enslave the heart. We can oh, oh so easily become chained to the material things of life, to our stuff, when we ought to be freed and controlled by the Spirit of God. We can greed will just enslave our heart. If our heart lusts after our stuff, if our, if our heart loves material things and puts earthly gain ahead of heavenly investments, then the result of that is going to be tragic. It's going to be tragic, big-time loss. Now, the treasures of the earth are stuff. The treasures of the earth, surely they can be used by God. But if we gather them up and we hoard them up and we fill our closets up and we fill our garages up and we fill our, our attics up with all, of, with all of that stuff, ultimately we're going to lose it. And what we're going to lose right along with it is, is our hearts. So that begs a question, what does it mean to store up treasures in heaven? And it means to use every single thing that we've got, all of our resources, human resources, our brain, our time, our stuff, our money, or whatever. It means to use all of that stuff, all of those things, for the glory of God. It means to go all in for God. It means to, to chill on buying a bunch of meaningless junk. And it also means measuring life by the true riches of the kingdom and not by the false riches of the world. This is not complicated. This whole thing is not complicated. It is an outlook thing. It is a perspective thing. It is a worldview thing. And at the core of the core, it is a heart thing. Look at your bank account. Look at your credit card bill. Look at your, look at your check register. And you know what's going to be staring you straight up in the face? What, what do you think is going to be staring you straight in the face? It's going to be your heart. And it's going to be the desires of your heart because that checkbook is an outright window into the desires of your heart. Your heart is the seat of thought. You think it's your mind, you think it's your brain, but both good and evil emanate from the, from the heart. So, so your heart is the seat of thought, and it's so obvious, it's so weird because it's so obvious, but then it's so easy to miss it right in front of you that the desires of your heart manifest themselves in your spending habits. And your spending habits give you a perfect picture of where your heart's at. They're inextricably linked together. There's not, you can't pretend that they're not because, because they are. And you think I'm talking about, maybe you think I'm talking about spending money on bad stuff. Maybe you are, but that's completely not what I'm talking about. It's not even really, it's not, it's not even the issue. For Susan and I, probably, it was our kids. Neither one of us grew up wealthy, and we wanted our kids to have more, I hate to say it this way, we wanted our kids to have more stuff than we had. We wanted our kids to live a little differently than, than, than we did. It seems natural, and that seems normal. Right now, they're 24 and 21. That seems natural, and that seems normal. And it's weird. I can tell you, Zach and Will, that's my two sons, they are right smack in the middle of the desires of our hearts. They're our kids, right? You kind of think they ought to be. And so, look, I'm not telling you not to love your kids. I adore my kids. And I'm not telling you not to provide for your kids. Provide well for them. What I am telling you is don't turn that provision into an idol. Don't let that provision get in between you and God. And you can, you can substitute in that blank where kids is all kind of stuff. Golf, 
houses, cars, vacations. Pick something, hunting rifles, I don't know. Pick anything that, that you can put in there that, that gets in between you and God. We can have a real tendency to idolize that. We've got this morning, we've got to get, got to get our hearts right. And that verse kept popping in my head. Wherever your treasure is, wherever your treasure is, wherever treasure is, your heart's following that. So look at this. If God has first place in the pecking order, not kids, not houses, not golf, not donations to the animal shelter, not donations to the Wounded Warrior Project, et cetera, et cetera, and these aren't bad things. None of those things are bad things. But if, in fact, God is sitting on the throne in first place, then my checkbook is going to reflect that God is sitting on the throne in first place. We have we, we got to... We got to pay attention to the to the still small voice of the Lord as He speaks every single day to our hearts. This so a heart thing, and Jesus Christ for two thousand years has been in the heart changing business and in the heart growing business. So, number one point was to get our get our hearts and our checkbooks on the same playing field. Now let's let's see if we can figure out this tide thing. Turn with me to, to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, a few, a few books later in the, uh, in the New Testament. And Paul's beginning to wrap up this letter to the church at Corinth. And he's talking about taking up an offering at the church at Corinth, or in the church at Corinth, for the sister church in Jerusalem. And this short passage gives us a window, a great window into giving in the early church, and it gives us a few principles to guide our giving today. So this is 1 Corinthians chapter 16, uh, starting in verse 1. Now about the collection for the Lord's people. Can you get that passage up? Thank you. Now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you, each one of you, should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive... I'll give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. Now, you see in verse 3, that little word gift, in the original language, in the Greek, in the original language, that word is haris, spelled C-H-A. I guess it's not spelled that. In English, it's spelled that way, but it's haris, and that word actually means grace. And the reason that I point that, it means grace. And the reason that I point that out to you is because I want you to see that this passage, first thing, that this passage it's not just about taking up an everyday tithe offering in that church. No, it's not, about, it's not about that. Just like everything else in the book of 1 Corinthians, this offering centers around God's grace, the grace that's shown towards me and you in the cross of Christ and the way, the way that his grace towards us overflows out of us into other people's lives. <clears throat> so the cross, it compels us to give, and it compels us to give in a number of different ways. First, it compels us to give universally. The Bible says in verse 2 here, each one of you should set aside. Each doesn't mean some. E each means each. It, it doesn't mean only those people with certain economic standing or certain in a certain financial place where we say, okay, 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 some of you who are wealthy need to give. No, that is not what it says. It's, this is for everyone. So it compels, the cross compels us to give universally. The cross, number two, it compels us to give 
corporately. This specific offering that Paul's talking about um, was earmarked for their sister church in Jerusalem. And so we see that, uh, that giving reflects commitment to the church. Sometimes we have this idea, follow this with me, sometimes we have this idea that we're all on our own in this Christian life and we should give wherever and however we want. And it's not that it's wrong to give outside of the church. I'm going to come back to this in a little while, but, it, but it's not. It's not that it's wrong to sometimes to give outside of the church, but the New Testament places a crystal clear priority on giving inside the church for the things of the church, and that's true here at my church. One of the things that unites one of the, that unites us is giving in my church to enable the ministries of my church here in Columbus and out there away from Columbus, out in the world. Today, we're united with art churches all over the globe. We're united with Mia Glacia, our church plant in Mexico. We're united with ministries in our area and across the world because we as a church are giving to them. We're united with things like M2540, our homeless ministry, where we reach out showing people in impoverished areas all over Columbus that God hadn't forgot about them. We're united through ministries like our, uh, like our impact cheerleading, serving the gospel to kids and their, and their parents through competitive cheerleading. In fact, last year in our church, y'all, we gave 33%. 33% of the giving in our church went to ministries and missions just like that. 33%. Ministries both locally and globally. This is why that, that, that we give corporately. We're not isolated givers. We give together. So we give universally. We give corporately. Number three, third of all, we give regularly. The Bible says in verse 2, on the first day of every week, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money. And that's a reference to the church's gathering on the first day of the week and the importance of giving as a part of that gathering. And the Bible emphasizes every week here. Now, if you get, if you get paid monthly, I'm not telling you that, to, to give every week. If you get paid quarterly or something, I'm not saying that. It's the regularity of it that the Bible is emphasizing. It's the everyness. Probably not a word, but it's the everyness. We just don't give when we feel right. We don't. We, we don't just feel, we just don't, don't just give when we get a bonus. We don't, we don't just give when we feel guilty because we hadn't given in a while. We don't, this is not a guilt thing. Oh my goodness, it is, has nothing to do with that. The cross compels intentionality in giving on a regular basis. So we give universally, we give corporately, we give regularly, and we give proportionately. The cross compels us to give proportionately. So yeah, this is a universal call for every single member of this church to give, but Paul writes in the middle of verse 2, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. That's an indication that Paul understood, just like we all do, that people's incomes are different and we ought to give accordingly to our income. There's one more principle that I want to give you that I think is the most, I think is the most important, and it is that the cross compels me and you to give to God first. It's to give to him first. It's to have him in first place. 
That's a faith-building thing. That's a heart-building thing. That's a trusting thing. And it is a principle. It's the principle of God being first in every single area of our life. And when he is first, every area of our life will begin to come into order. And when he's not first, every area of our life seems somehow to not come into order. I'm not telling you that life's going to be a bed of roses when you tithe. It's not what I'm telling you. I'm telling you that, that your life and every area of your life will come into order if God is first in every area. So check out, turn backwards in your Bible, back to the book of Exodus, Genesis, Exodus, second book in the Bible. Turn to chapter 13. We're going to start in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Consecrate means to set apart. It means to set aside. It means, it means to make holy, set apart. So consecrate or set apart to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both a man and a beast is mine. The tense here in the Hebrew is really, really emphatic. God says the firstborn is mine. It's not yours, it's mine. I own it. You think you do, but I do. It's mine, it's not yours. Now look down to verse 12. We're going to look at 12 and 13. You shall set apart, same consecrate word, same set aside word. You shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be or belong to. It's the same emphatic tense as the the verb above. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. In other words, you're going to lose it if you don't bring it to the Lord. So if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. First point here is that the firstborn must be sacrificed or redeemed. This was Old Testament law, but we're trying to figure out the principle that is behind it. So how do you know which one to do, to redeem or to sacrifice? God gives us in this passage two examples of two different classes. He gives us two animals that are great examples of that, clean and unclean. The lamb represents the clean, and the donkeys were considered unclean. So here's what he's saying, and just stay with me here because you're going to get this. If your unclean animal has a firstborn, it has to be redeemed. Redeemed means bought back or purchased back. So if your unclean animal has a firstborn, it has to be redeemed with the sacrifice of a clean animal. It's got to be bought back with the sacrifice of a clean animal. And if your clean animal has a firstborn, it has to be sacrificed to me. It has to be given to me. So probably y'all are sitting there thinking, what in the world does this have anything to do with anything that we're talking about this morning? We read something in the Old Testament like that, and we say, what in the world does that have to do with me? But then we've got to remember 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says that everything, just about everything in the Old Testament represents something in the New, and there's a principle here that we need to see. Again, a clean animal has to be sacrificed. Let me say this. Jesus is called God's firstborn. So a clean firstborn has to be sacrificed. An unclean firstborn has to be bought back by the sacrifice of a clean firstborn. Got a couple of questions for you. Were you and I, when we were born, when we breathed the first breath, in our spiritual condition, were you and I clean or unclean? We were unclean. 
We were born with a sinful nature. We had a bent or an inclination towards sin, and I don't think any of y'all would argue with me about that. Let me ask you parents out there, little Johnny, little Betty Lou, did you have to teach them how to be bad? No, no, no. They came, it came, they came by it naturally because we are all born unclean. So let me ask you question number two. Was Jesus born unclean or clean? Say again. Clean. So listen, this is what this passage is about. The clean has got to be sacrificed so that the unclean can be bought, bought back. Think about it. The clean has got to be sacrificed so the unclean can be redeemed. That is what this is talking about. And so we're going to see here in the scriptures today, we're going to talk through tithing, firstborn, firstborn, firstfruits, that the, the tithe, being the, that firstborn being the tithe. Because you see, given the tithe first, it's, it's, it's first. It's not the last 10%. It's the first 10%. It doesn't take faith to give the last 10%. It, takes, it doesn't take faith to pay all your bills and then write a tithe check. That's not faith. God doesn't say, wait until your sheep has 10 lambs and then give me one of them and you can give me whichever one you want. Give me the scrawny, sorriest one. No, that's not what he says in this passage. He says, give me the first one before you even know if you're going to have any more. That takes faith to give him the first, the first one. You see, the first portion is the redemptive portion. Giving the first 10% actually redeems the other 90%. That is what tithing really is. It is giving our first and best to God. It, here's what it is. It's saying, God, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give to you first, and I'm going to trust that you're going to redeem the rest. It always, always, always requires faith to give the first. That's why most Christians, many Christians, fail to experience the blessings of tithing. It means giving to, <clears throat> excuse me, giving to God before you even know if you're going to have enough. It's as if you're saying to him, I recognize you first, I'm putting you first in my life, and I'm going to trust that you're going to take care of all the rest of it. That it's, it is a faith-building, trust-building heart thing. So the firstborn must be redeemed or sacrificed, and the second point here is that the first fruits must be offered. So look at Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase or income, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. And then Exodus 23, 19. The first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. Notice in this verse, you are to bring them into the house of the Lord. So the tithe always comes into the house of the Lord. The tithe always comes into church. By the way, you cannot biblically designate a tithe. It's not a tithe if you're biblically designated that tithe. So you can't give some to the church, some to a missionary, some to a Christian school, and say, well, this, this week I'm going to tithe to the, this school over here. That, that's not the way it works. You can't do that. And the reason you can't designate it is because it's the, it, 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 it's the same it's the same reason why God uses the word bring in this verse. He never uses the word give when he's talking about tithing. He always uses the word bring. So the reason you can't give it is because you can't give something that's not yours. You can bring it into the house of the Lord, and you really got two options. You can bring it or you can steal it. That's the only two words that God uses when he talks about tithing. That's the only options that you have. 
bring and steal because it belongs to the Lord. And you may sit there and say, yeah, but everything belongs to the Lord. And I get that, and everything does. But, but, but this, he's talking, this he says is consecrated. He says, he says this is set apart. This is set aside. This is made holy. That's the word that he uses there. And when you understand this principle, it is the coolest thing because it's all over the scriptures. For instance, you remember the account in Joshua, the book of Joshua, when, the, when Jericho fell. Jer- remember the story in Joshua when they marched, Israel's army marched around and the walls fell and they took all the gold and silver. Well, here's, that, that's, a, that's like a first fruits thing. Jer- you think Jericho was the first city that Israel, the nation of Israel, when they came into the promised land to conquer, you think Jericho was the first city or the tenth city they conquered? That would be the first. So God said, give me all the gold and silver you have in Jericho, and he told him to bring it into the house of the Lord. He told him to bring everything from the first city before you even knew that you were going to conquer other cities. He didn't say, go conquer ten cities, and whichever one you want to give me, you give me. No, he said, you give me the first one. You give me the first one, and that was Jericho. The principles everywhere in Scripture. Look at... uh, Look at Genesis chapter 4 and verse 3. In the course of time, in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from the firstborn of his flock. So the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. You ever wonder? why God dissed Cain and his offering and looked with favor on Abel and his offering? Because that's what that says. I mean, that's what that Bible says right there. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. You ever wonder why? And as you begin to understand this principle of firstborn and firstfruits, it's simple to see why. Look at verse 3. In the course of time, these words are very, very important. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel brought the first. Abel, who's a rancher, brought the firstborn. Cain, who's a farmer, in the course of time, when he felt like it, when he got around to it, he slept in this morning, so he didn't want to do it this morning, so he's going to do it maybe next week. He brought an offering. Said another way, He gave like many Christians today give. He gave what he wanted, when he wanted. And here's God said, I ain't going to take it. He said, I'm not going to receive it. I'm going to look down on it. I'm not taking it. I heard a seminary professor one time say, ask this question, why do you think God invented tithing? Contrary to popular opinion, opinion, some preacher didn't invent tithing. God invented tithing. So he asked the question, why did God invent tithing? And one of the young students said, well, to support the work of his ministry. And that answer sounds logical. Clearly, it sounds logical and it sounds right until you really think about it. Do you really, really think that God invented tithing because he needs your money? Do do you really think that God invented tithing because he needed your support? No, no. He split the sea so that you and I could walk through it. He set every star and every... Pluto and Jupiter and planets, and he set all just where he wanted it to be. And you think he needs your money? He don't need your money. 
Here's why he invented tithing. He invented tithing to work greed and selfishness out of our hearts. This is a heart thing. He invented tithing to work greed and selfishness out of our hearts. And that, by the way, is the problem with lots of preaching today on giving. Now, I'm not saying God doesn't reward us. He does reward us. He rewards us for having the right heart. And I'm not telling you that you're going to tithe today and the Mercedes is going to be in your driveway. It ain't, I ain't telling you that because it's not true. Could it happen? Yeah. Don't be doing that. It's not about giving to get. Too many people give to get. It's not you give to give. And you give because God gave you and me the greatest gift of all. His son, Jesus Christ, that died on a cross. What better gift is there than that? And so you need to give because you want to give because of the grace that he has shown us. And so the, the firstborn must be sacrificed or redeemed. First fruits must be offered. And third, the tithe must be first. And it's simple because God owns it and everything. And everything that God owns is first because he is first. And by the way, even if he's not first in our lives, he's still first. Even if you ain't made him first in your life, you got him second or third, he's still first. Does that make sense? You ain't that important that because you have put him second or third that it changes the cosmos. We, we don't have that much authority and, and power. Anyways, the, the tithe must be first. It belongs to him. It's his. Look at Leviticus chapter 27, verse 30. A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the tree, trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. In Hebrew, this is one of the most emphatic statements in all of the Old Testament. It's his. It belongs to him. It's holy. Again, that word means to set apart or set aside. So how does it, so how does it work out that we need to give the first 10%? Let's look at the math. I had a job or something. I got a, made $1,000 yesterday. I got $1,000 bills right here. How much is my tithe? This is not hard. What's 10% of 1000 thousand? hundred bucks. I got a hundred bucks. hundred bucks is my tithe. Okay, but I got 10 of them. Which one is my tithe? That was good. Everybody said the first. The first. All right, well, but which one's the first? I mean, I got 10. Which one is the first one? It's the first. What'd you say? You said the top? Might be. It's the first one that leaves my hand. First one, wherever that hat could be the bottom because I could deal off the bottom of the deck. But it's the first one that leaves my hand. And, and, and here's, here, here's what you don't do. You don't go home and you set aside, got to pay my mortgage, got to pay my car note, got to pay the power bill, got to pay the water bill, got to pay the gas bill, got to pay, pay my cell phone bill. That's probably two of them. And, 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 then I, and then I got my tithe. No, here's what you did. You gave your tithe to the mortgage company. And the mortgage company doesn't have the power to bless your entire life to include your finances. It was not rocket mortgage that died on the cross to save you. Okay? It wasn't. It wasn't. It, it wasn't Citibank that split the sea so me and you could walk right through it. You know, and then sometimes, sometimes we, we, we go home and we say, I'm paying this and I'm paying that and I'm paying this and I'm paying that and I'm paying this. And then, oh, my gosh, Susan, the tuition is due at Georgia and they're, I ain't got nothing left. I, I don't have enough to bring my tithe into the house of the Lord. But you know what? He wouldn't take it anyway because we don't serve a leftovers God. He's not a leftovers God. He's a first place God. 
And it is so funny, the number one reason why we hear that people don't tithe. And look, you ain't a bad person if you don't tithe. It's not about that. Oh, my goodness, I struggled for years and years and years and years with this. You're not a bad person if you're struggling with tithing. But the, the number one reason we hear that people don't is here's what they say. Listen, man, I just can't afford it. I can't afford to tithe. Hear this. You'll never be able to afford to tithe, ever, until you begin to tithe. You'll never, ever be able to afford to tithe until you begin to tithe. Because really trust in God with everything, and everything it includes your money. So to, and it's tough. I mean, I know it's tough. But trust in God with tithing is what opens up the, 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 the floodgates of heaven that, to allow him to pour everything into your life. And I'm not talking about the Mercedes in the driveway. I'm talking about everything in your life comes into order. And I want to end with this passage, the rest of this passage from Exodus 13. And I want to, I want to, uh, I want to read the last two verses, verses 14 and 15. And remember, this is about the firstborn and the lamb and the donkey. So verse 14, shoot to verse uh, 14. It says, and when in time your son asks you, and he's going to ask you, what does all this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. And because of that, because of that, God, you did that, therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. All right, this is going to be weird, but I want to ask you all to close your eyes, and I want you to let me paint a picture for you. To paint, uh, I'm going to tell you a story. It's not going to be a long story, but I'm going to tell you a story, and I want you to envision this in your mind. So I really do want you all to close your eyes. The little, this little boy, he runs into the kitchen, and he says, Mama, 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 Mama. The sheep's having a lamb, and it's her firstborn. So they all run out into the barn, and on the way, Daddy grabs a butcher knife. And so they get out, of, out to the barn, and they gather around the sheep, and the sheep's so cute. Look how cute he is. Oh, my goodness, he's standing up, and look at him. It's the miracle of life is sitting right there. And then the Daddy goes over there, and he grabs that sheep, that lamb, by the hind legs, and he picks it up, and he slits its throat. And this little boy's watching this. He's watching, the little boy's watching this whole thing play out. And what do you reckon he's thinking? He's probably thinking, don't mess with daddy. But, but you think about, what, what, what is he thinking? And so the son grows up year after year. He keeps seeing his dad do this over and over and over and year after year after year, sacrificing these animals. So the son grows up, and he goes off to college, and he graduates with honors from UGA. And he comes home to join the family business family farming business, family ranching business. And the dad looks at him, and he says, you got that fancy finance degree, son. I want you to keep the books. So son's going to be the family CPA. He's going to keep the books. And then one day, one day he's looking over the books, and his dad walks in the kitchen, and the son is, picture this, the son is sitting there looking over the books, and he says, well, dad, um, daddy, I've been going over the books, and dad, you don't have that knife with you, do you? But he said, you know, dad, you are the hardest working man that I know. And maybe this just kind of slipped by you. I don't know. Maybe you might not even, Daddy, you might not even realize that you're doing it. But, Dad, you asked me to go over the books, and I've been going over the books. And every time, you just may not even know you're doing this, but every time, Daddy, 
one of our animals has a firstborn, well, daddy, you kill it. And you killed 59 last, last, last year. 59, and it's cutting into the net, daddy. It's cutting in to the profit. And, and dad, I don't know if you remember, but daddy, we're in the ranching business. You know, why do you do this, dad? And that sounds like a normal question that a pencil-pushing finance degree guy's doing when he looks at the books. But here's what the Lord says to the father. Here's what the Lord says to the father to say to the son. Well, son, there's something, there's something about our family that you just don't know. We weren't always in the ranching business, son. Son, we didn't have animals. Son, we didn't have 3,500-acre farm. Son, we didn't have anything. Son, we were slaves. We owned nothing. We were in bondage. I was in bondage. But God, with a mighty hand, brought us out of the house of slavery. He redeemed us out of bondage. And he gave us every single thing that we've got. So therefore, I gladly give the first of my increase. Gladly give it to him. So I want to ask y'all, you, you can open your eyes. I just didn't want you to see me cry. So, so I want to ask you, are you, are you giving? Are you given as a reflection of your commitment to the church and as a picture of your unity within this body? Are you given regularly? Is there a systematic intentionality in the way that you give on a regular basis? Are you given proportionately in a way that reflects every single thing that God has given you? And are you bringing him your first and your best? And if you're not, then I want to encourage you not to come up with reasons why you're not, but to start giving now according to all these biblical principles that we laid out. Not to do so because you feel guilty. It has nothing to do with guilt. Nothing. It is not about being guilty. It's about grace. So, so I want you to ask yourself this question. I'm going to ask myself this question. What would the cross of Christ compel me to do with the money that God has entrusted to me? What would the cross of Christ compel me to do with the money that God has entrusted to me? And then I'm going to obey it. So y'all let me pray. Lord, I love you today. Lord, I love you because I was in bondage. Lord, I love, you. I love you that you split the sea from me. I was right in the middle of walking through it. Lord, I watched you hang the moon and the stars. And Lord, right in the middle of my unlovableness, you love me anyway. That is what grace is about. This is about grace. This is not about guilt. This is not about the Old Testament law. This is not about obedience. This is, not, this is about grace. This is about that cross. And it wasn't rocket mortgage that died on the cross. Lord, it was you that died on the cross because you loved me and you wanted to save me and right in the middle of me not being lovable you loved me and wanted to save me and so it's not about that it is about grace and it is about mercy and it is about love and so Lord let us get our hearts right let us get our get our checkbooks and our hearts jiving with each other and Lord I, 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 I pray that we're going to do that and I lift I lift everybody in this church up to you in Jesus name Amen <laughs>